On this Transfiguration Sunday, the Old Testament reading is recorded in Exodus chapter 24, beginning verse 12. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and stay here, and I will give you the tablets of stone with the law and commands I have written for their instruction. Then Moses set out with Joshua his aide, and Moses went up on the mountain of God. He said to the elders, Wait here for us until we come back to you. Aaron and Hur are here with you, and anyone involved in a dispute can go to them. When Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days the cloud covered the mountain, and on the seventh day the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. To the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. Then Moses entered the cloud as he went on up the mountain, and he stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Here ends the Old Testament. The epistle reading is recorded in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning verse 12. Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to keep the Israelites from gazing at it while the radiance was fading away, but their minds were made dull. For to this day the same veil remains when the Old Covenant is read. It has not been removed, because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we, who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Here ends the epistle. We stand in honor of the Holy Gospel. The Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew, chapter 17, beginning the first verse. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, His clothes became as white as light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. 
As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, Don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. Here ends the Holy Gospel. There'll be little people coming up in a minute. I don't think all of the little people went to Daytona, did they? When Moses saw God at the top of Mount Sinai, it was very bright, and we're told later that his face was bright and shining. Yes, his face was bright and shining. He saw God face to face, but it didn't last. And he tried to hide the fact that it didn't last. How many of you ever watch old cowboy shows? Uh Uh-oh, we're in trouble. When the bad guys come to rob a bank, they do this. You sure you haven't seen this before on some show? Yeah, they wear a veil or a mask so no one can see them. Moses is trying to hide the fact that his bright, shiny face was fading away. He was trying to hide that from people. But he didn't wear a thing like this. He had a veil. Not a wedding veil. Not like that. Don't laugh, but this is probably what he looked like. What? That's right, so I don't think he looked like this. Who's that Charlie Brown character that puts a blanket over his head? Who knows that? Linus. So Moses didn't look like Linus. He just looked silly. The veil they're talking about, remember they had kind of a headpiece over the top, and they also had a veil underneath, usually something like this. So he was covered up here and then down here, so all you could see was his eyes. I wonder if his voice sounded like this. But he was trying to hide something because... As it went along, at a certain point, his face was no longer bright and shining anymore. And he was afraid that people might think that maybe he never really saw God on the mountain. So he was hiding things, hiding a reality, which is not good. With Jesus' transfiguration, nobody could look at him and figure that he was the Son of God. Was his face shiny? Not until transfiguration. At that point, his face, it says, was shining like the sun. Now, don't go outside and do that today. Not unless you've got a welder's mask or some heavy-duty sunglasses. But his face was shining like the sun. Another gospel writer says that his clothing was continuously flashing forth like lightning. Another one said it was brilliantly white like winter snow. That's when he was showing that he was truly the Son of God. 
and had been promised to come by Moses and Elijah. That's as much as I'm going to say at this point. But remember, Jesus really wasn't hiding anything. He was just finally displaying who he was all along. Okay, you can go back again. Sanctify them by your truth, O Lord. Your word is truth. Amen. Our text for this morning is actually the epistle reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Sanctify them by your truth, O Lord. Amen. If you go on the cable stations or through satellite, there's always a section of choice of programs called the religious section. There are certain characters from certain ministries that like to talk like this. Glory, glory, glory. glory. Oh, Jama Jesus, give me an amen. I'm amazed. <laughs> Lutherans don't usually do that. Glory, glory, glory. Look at the heavens, oh glory. Oh, look at how wonderful the day is. Oh, I'm overcome with glory. They talk a lot about glory. It's a lot of bluster. A lot of swinging hands around. A lot of yelling and screaming. People jumping up and down and saying, Amen. Amen, preacher. Amen. Is that really spiritually uplifting? Or is it kind of a rock concert of a different type? Just because people get all enthused and jump around and scream and cry and feel wonderful inside, is that a guarantee of anything spiritual at all? Frank Sinatra's dead, so I can't have those wonderful feelings anymore. Michael Buble is alive, and I love to hear his music. And I get all goosebumpy and feely wonderful inside when this good jazz is being sung and played. Does that mean I've got Jesus? No. I've just got very strong emotions. But emotions don't prove anything, and they certainly aren't a guarantee of salvation. In the Old Testament, people loved to jump up and down and scream and yell, although they didn't say Jesus, but they did say glory, glory, glory a lot. Remember Elijah, the last prophet of God in the Old Testament? He took on all of the prophets of Baal and Asherah, about 950 prophets, and those prophets got to go first to ask their God to send down fire from heaven. And that was supposed to prove who the true God was. Elijah let those guys go first. Can you imagine 950 prophets yelling and screaming and praising and jumping up and down? By the way, that didn't work. They started that in the morning and they did it all the way past noon 
until 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Then they started gashing and beating themselves and the blood was running and they're still jumping up and down and yelling and screaming. At a certain point, they quieted down a little bit and Elijah said, why don't you scream louder? Maybe he's taking a nap. That was one option. Another option that doesn't show up well in English was maybe he's sitting in the outhouse doing his business. Oh, some of you don't know what an outhouse is. Ask your parents and godparents. None of that worked. None of the screaming, the waving arms, none of this emotionalism did anything. And it had nothing to do with the true God at all. When it was Elijah's turn, he did stupid stuff. He had them dig a trench and pour water on the sacrifice and more water and more water and more water and more water until the trench was filled with water and the sacrifice was completely drenched. Makes me think a little bit like baptism. And Elijah didn't jump up and down and scream and yell. He just had a simple request. And God showed his presence with fire coming down from heaven which consumed the sacrifice and the stone altar and all the water in the trenches. It's at this point that the people started yelling and screaming and saying, the Lord, he is God. Hallelujah, the Lord, he is God. But within a few days, they weren't saying that anymore. They were very boisterous in their response, but in time there was no real religious change at all. Nothing. They went back to their own ways. By the way, that's a wonderful sound. Paul, when he writes to the Corinthians, was dealing with people that were basically pagan in the way they looked at things. Most of those people had gone to temples of Zeus and Hera, Minerva, you pick it, they went to them. They had a big fun time. Worship in those days had to do with big meals like Thanksgivings, people singing great songs, get them all whooped up, and they did immoral things just for the fun of it. I'm not going to go into that because there's children here. But they had a great time. Paul is trying to warn the Christians in Corinth that this has nothing to do with worship. And he brings in the whole event of the transfiguration. Moses is the bad guy. He says... Do not be like Moses who kept putting a veil over his face so the sons of Israel would not be able to gaze at what was slowly fading away. This is an example of religious lies. Moses is trying to make it look like he still has the glory of God, the glory of Sinai, all the brightness and the power and the strength but what was really there underneath the veil? Fading. Nothing. He was trying to pull a fast one. 
Paul says this is not the way our Christian faith is to be. Instead, therefore, since we continue to have such a hope, that means a sure expectation, let us continue to make use of it with great boldness. Now, this is not running around with your hands in the air, rolling on the ground, yelling and screaming, getting all excited and enthused. The term for boldness here means, let's see if anybody will do it. I want someone here to stand up and just give me a simple one-sentence little thingy about what they believe about Jesus. Oh, now this is typical. <laughs> Nobody want to try it? It's not, con it's not confirmation class. See? Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings thou hast perfected praise. <gasps> she didn't say Jesus, though. I know she was baptized. Elliot, want to say anything about Jesus? Oh, okay. I'm not going to pick on anybody, although I could. Couldn't I? The term boldness here means that you're not afraid what anybody else thinks and that you are willing to stand up and talk about your faith in Christ Jesus. Not in wild terms that would make you look like an idiot or a candidate for an insane asylum, but just to stand up and not be afraid to talk about your faith, which is in Jesus Christ. That's that term hope that he used earlier. An expectation of what's ahead. For Christians, the expectation is now of the forgiveness of sins, day by day. That is glorious. You have the expectation that beyond death there's eternal life. That's even more glorious. And you have the expectation of resurrection into a new and perfect creation. That's glorious again. But just to talk in simple terms about your faith, not necessarily standing up, maybe sitting around a coffee table, maybe at work, maybe as the postman brings the mail, you say thank you and you give a little testimony. That's what this word boldness means, that you're not afraid what anybody else thinks because your expectation of God's blessings is sure. That's what Paul's talking about. Your boldness is not jumping up and down. He talks about a figure of speech. The Jews in his day, it says their minds had been darkened, and to this very day when the Old Testament was read, a veil continued to be over them. And the only way the veil is taken away is when Christ comes. Well, he has come. That's the confession of the Easter event. He will come again. That's going to be the joy of Easter Sunday, past his suffering and death. These are the things that we speak of, not with craziness, but with love and compassion toward those around us. And he says, the Lord is spirit. 
That's referring to the Holy Spirit. It's not referring to a spirit of craziness. The Lord is spirit, and where the spirit is, there is peace. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul will elsewhere say. The glory of the transfiguration is actually not with the candles and the display of brightness. The glory of transfiguration is not that his face is shining like the sun or his clothing is shining like lightning. It's none of those things. In Luke's account, we're told that Jesus was talking with Moses and Elijah about his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Those words are not referring to any kind of earthly notions of glory. It's not like the guy today who's going to win the Daytona 500 and have, is it champagne or milk sprayed all over him? It's not those kind of earthly things. The glory of transfiguration is that Jesus is talking about his departure, fancy word for his death. This is going to be his glory. How many of you want homework today? Sure, it's easy. Go home and read just chapter 12, that's easy, 12, of the Gospel of John. Before Jesus goes to the cross, he has a simple prayer. He says out loud to God the Father, Father, glorify your name. If you think like earthly people do, you'll think, wow, pomposity, great things, lightning flashing. But no, the answer from the Father was, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. But what are they talking about? Jesus then says, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto myself. And then it says, he spoke these words to show by what death he was about to die. The glory that the Father is talking about and the glory that Jesus will gain at the cross is true glory. So where's our glory? Paul in our text says, and we all with unveiled faces, that means with honesty of who we are, many times with the grime of sin still on our faces, we all with unveiled faces continue to be holding the glory of the Lord as in a mirror. And with this, we are constantly being transfigured. The Greek word is metamorphosis, changed or transfigured into his image from one glory to another glory, which comes from the Lord. The glory that Paul says that the Corinthians are to be looking at is not earthly expressions of greatness and power and pomp and strength, but they're to look to Jesus. As it says in Hebrews, we fix our eyes on Jesus, 
And then he goes on to talk about the crucifixion. We see this as in a mirror. Now, mirrors that we have nowadays look pretty good. Does that look like you? Sandy, does that look like you? No, don't say sort of. <laughs> we look to Jesus, but we see him as the ancient mirrors were. They were just polished brass. They were kind of bumpy and lumpy, more like at a circus sideshow. So you're looking at Jesus as though looking in an old-style mirror where things are a little distorted. That's the best we get this side of heaven. The perfect picture of Jesus we'll know in heaven itself and see the brightness of his, of his glory. But for now, the brightness is always in his word. That's how we fix our eyes on Jesus, especially Christ crucified. That's where you see God's glory. That changes us. We have a metamorphosis. Not outwardly. The older you get, the shorter you get, the uglier you get, your voice gets worse, you get arthritis, some of you are saying, okay, we can stop. <laughs> Our metamorphosis is not physical in any way. It's the internal. The longer you are one who keeps looking to Jesus for your forgiveness of sins, which is God's glory, the more you will be transfigured or changed. Because you'll know your sins very easily. You'll confess them to others quickly. But most of all, you will know the gospel more personally for the multitudes of sin that Christ has forgiven you all through the many years. Faith in Christ crucified is what transforms you. And you have this hope, this peace, this assurance of salvation and eternal life. And over time, you become even more eager to share it. And so, from glory to glory, the glory of the gospel. Amen. And the peace of God that passes understanding will keep our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus unto life everlasting. Amen.